Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, so, uh, we were very, very excited about this event. Are you very, very excited about this yeah. event? Yes, exactly, right? Um, her book is, uh, we're cho- choosing her book as the uh, Skylight Pick of the Month. Um, so if you are a member of the bookstore, um, you get to have a, uh, get her, get to have her sign, a signed copy of her book, as well as participate in our book club. Um, we have been thrilled and excited waiting for this event, this event for months. Um, and, um, we're familiar with her work. Uh, she's been uh, an amazing voice in literature. Please welcome Otessa Matveik. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, thank you to Skylight for having me. This is my third or fourth reading here. And um, it's always really nice to be here. And I live like down the street, so it's really easy to get here. <laughs> but I love this bookstore. and. So, um, Thank you guys for coming out. I can't believe how many people are here, and I'm sorry that you're standing up. Um, there's room here if you want to come and sit, although nobody's going to do that. Um, so the book came out today. This is my first reading from the book, and um, I don't know exactly how it's going to go, but um, are, Is anyone going to have questions at the end? Because I can, if there are a lot of questions, then I won't have to read for as long. Uh, No no questions, okay. Okay, well, I'm going to just read from the opening of the novel, and um, you get to hear the daily life of the the protagonist in this year of her life when she's supposed to be resting and relaxing. Um, And you'll be introduced to... Um, two of the other characters, um, and I might end up skipping, so just bear with me. It's hard to gauge what's going to be good until you read it out loud. I should have thought of that earlier. So this is my year of rest and relaxation. Chapter one. Whenever I woke up, night or day, I'd shuffle through the bright marble foyer of my building and go up the block and around the corner where there was a bodega that never closed. I'd get two large coffees with cream and six sugars each, chug the first one in the elevator on the way back up to my apartment, then sip the second one slowly while I watched movies and ate animal crackers and took trazodone and Ambien and Nembutal until I fell asleep again. I lost track of time in this way. Days passed, weeks. A few months went by. When I thought of it, I ordered delivery from the Thai restaurant across the street or a tuna salad platter from the diner on First Avenue. I'd wake up to find voice messages on my cell phone from salons or spas confirming appointments I'd booked in my sleep. I always called back to cancel, which I hated doing because I hated talking to people. Early on in this phase, I had my dirty laundry picked up and clean laundry delivered once a week. 
It was a comfort for me to hear the torn plastic bags rustle in the draft from the living room windows. I liked catching whiffs of the fresh laundry smell while I dozed off on the sofa. But after a while, it was too much trouble to gather up all the dirty clothes and stuff them in the laundry bag, and the sound of my own washer and dryer interfered with my sleep. So I just threw away my dirty underpants. All the old pairs reminded me of Trevor, anyway. For a while, tacky lingerie from Victoria's Secret kept showing up in the mail, frilly fuchsia and lime green thongs and teddies and baby doll nightgowns, each sealed in a clear plastic baggie. I stuffed the little baggies into the closet and went commando. An occasional package from Barney's or Saks provided me with men's pajamas and other things I couldn't remember ordering. Cashmere socks, graphic t-shirts, designer jeans. I took a shower once a week at most. I stopped tweezing, stopped bleaching, stopped waxing, stopped brushing my hair. No moisturizing or exfoliating, no shaving. I left the apartment infrequently. I had all my bills on automatic payment plans. I had already paid a year of property taxes on my apartment and on my dead parents' old house upstate. Rent money from the tenants in that house showed up in my checking account by direct deposit every month. Unemployment was rolling in as long as I made the weekly call into the automated service and pressed one for yes when the robot asked if I'd made a sincere effort to find a job. That was enough to cover the co-payments on all my prescriptions and whatever I picked up at the bodega. Plus, I had investments. My dead father's financial advisor kept track of all that and sent me quarterly statements that I never read. I had plenty of money in my savings account, too, enough to live on for a few years as long as I didn't do anything spectacular. On top of all this, I had a high credit lima limit on my visa card. I wasn't worried about money. I had started hibernating as best I could in mid-June of 2000. I was 24 years old. I watched summer die and autumn turn cold and gray through a broken slat in the blinds. My, mus my muscles withered. The sheets on my bed yellowed, although I usually fell asleep in front of the television on the sofa, which was from Pottery Barn and striped blue and white and sagging and covered in coffee and sweat stains. I didn't do much in my waking hours besides watch movies. I couldn't stand to watch regular television, especially at the beginning, TV aroused too much in me and I'd get compulsive about the remote, clicking around, scoffing at everything and agitating myself. I couldn't handle it. The only news I could read were the sensational headlines on the local daily paper at the bodega. I'd quickly, get, I'd quickly glance at them as I paid for my coffees. Bush versus Gore for president. Somebody important died. A child was kidnapped. A senator stole money. A famous athlete cheated on his pregnant wife. Things were happening in New York City. They always are, but none of it affected me. This was the beauty of sleep. Reality detached itself and appeared in my mind as casually as a movie or a dream. It was easy to ignore things that didn't concern me. Subway workers went on strike. A hurricane came and went. It didn't matter. Extraterrestrials could have landed. Locusts could have swarmed, 
and I would have noted it, but I wouldn't have worried. When I needed more pills, I ventured out to the Rite Aid three blocks away. That was always a painful passage. Walking up First Avenue, everything made me cringe. I was like a baby being born. The air hurt, the light hurt, the details of the world seemed garish and hostile. I relied on alcohol only on the days of these excursions, a shot of vodka before I went out and walked past all the little bistros and cafes and shops I'd frequented when I was out there pretending to live a life. Otherwise, I tried to limit myself to a one-block radius around my apartment. <coughs> I'm going to skip. So then she, she talks about the guys that work at the bodega for quite a while. Um, <coughs> And then, um, and then her friend comes into the story. Riva would show up at my apartment with a bottle of wine from time to time and insist on keeping me company. Her mother was dying of cancer. That, among many other things, made me not want to see her. You forgot I was coming over, Riva would ask, push, would ask, pushing her way past me into the living room and flipping on the lights. We talked last night, remember? I liked to call Riva just as the Ambien was kicking in, or the Solpoton, or whatever. According to her, I only ever wanted to talk about Harrison Ford and Whoopi Goldberg, which she said was fine. Last night you recounted the entire plot of Frantic, and you did the scene where they're driving in the car with the cocaine. You went on and on. Emmanuel Saigne is amazing in that movie. That's exactly what you said last night. I was both relieved and irritated when Riva showed up, the way you'd feel if someone interrupted you in the middle of suicide. Not that what I was doing was suicide. In fact, it was the opposite of suicide. My hibernation was self-preservational. I thought that it was going to save my life. Now get in the shower, Riva would say, heading into the kitchen. I'll take out the trash. I loved Riva, but I didn't like her anymore. We've been friends since college, long enough that all we had left in common was our history together. A, com a complex circuit of resentment, memory, jealousy, denial, and a few dresses I'd let Riva borrow, which she'd promised to dry clean and return but never did. She worked as an executive assistant for an insurance brokerage firm in Midtown. She was an only child, a gym rat, had a blotchy red birthmark on her neck in the shape of Florida, a gum-chewing habit that gave her TMJ and breath that reeked of cinnamon and green apple candy. She liked to come over to my place, clear space for herself on the armchair, comment on the state of the apartment, say I looked like I'd lost more weight, and complain about work, all while refilling her wine glass after every sip. Um, okay. <clears throat> People don't understand what it's like for me, she said. They take it for granted that I'm always going to be cheerful. Meanwhile, these assholes think they can go around treating everyone below them like shit, and I'm supposed to giggle and look cute and send their faxes? Fuck that. Let them all go bald and burn in hell. That's Riva. Riva was having an affair with her boss, Ken, a middle-aged man with a wife and child. She was open about her obsession with him, but she tried to hide that they were sexually involved. 
She once showed me a picture of him in a company brochure. Tall, big shoulders, white button-down shirt, blue tie, face so nondescript, so boring, he may as well have been molded out of plastic. Riva had a thing for older men, as did I. Men our age, Riva said, were too corny, too affectionate, too needy. I could understand her disgust, but I'd never met a man like that. All the men I'd ever been with, young as well as old, had been detached and unfriendly. You're a cold fish, that's why, Riva explained. Like attracts like. As a friend, Riva was indeed corny and affectionate and needy, but she was also very secretive and occasionally very patronizing. She couldn't or simply wouldn't understand why I wanted to sleep all the time, and she was always rubbing my nose in her moral high ground and telling me to face the music about whatever bad habit I'd been stuck on at the time. The summer I started sleeping, Riva admonished me for squandering my bikini body. Smoking kills. You should get out more. Are you getting enough protein in your diet? Etc. I'm not a baby, Riva. I'm just worried about you because I care. Because I love you, she'd say. We'd met junior year. Uh, sorry, since we'd met junior year, Riva could never soberly admit to any desire that was remotely uncouth. But she wasn't perfect. She's no white lily, as my mother would have said. I'd known for years that Riva was bulimic. I knew she masturbated with an electric neck massager because she was too embarrassed to buy a proper vibrator from a sex shop. I knew she was deep in debt from college and years of maxed out credit cards and that she shoplifted testers from the beauty section of the health food store near her apartment on the Upper West Side. I'd seen the tester stickers on various items and the huge bag of makeup she carried around wherever she went. She was a slave to vanity and status, status, which was not unusual in a place like Manhattan, but I found her desperation especially irritating. It made it hard for me to respect her intelligence. She was so obsessed with brand names, conformity, fitting in. She made regular trips down to Chinatown for the latest knockoff designer handbags. She'd given me a Dooney and Burke wallet for Christmas once. She got, she got us matching fake coach key rings. <clears throat> Ironically, her desire to be classy had always been the déclassé thorn in her side. Studied grace is not grace, I once tried to explain. Charm is not a hairstyle. You either have it or you don't. The more you try to be fashionable, the tackier you'll look. Nothing hurt Riva more than effortless beauty like mine. When we'd watched Before Sunrise on video one day, she'd said, did you know Julie Delpy's a feminist? I wonder if that's why she's not skinnier. No way they'd cast her in this role if she were American. See how soft her arms are? Nobody here tolerates arm flab. Arm flab is a killer. It's like the SATs. You don't even exist if you're below 1400. Does it make you happy that Julie Delpy has arm flab, I'd asked her? No, she'd said after some consideration. Happiness is not what I'd call it. More like satisfaction. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to skip so that you get to meet um, her really fantastic psychiatrist. Okay.
but she's taking a lot of medicine. <laughs> I can't point to any one event that resulted in my decision to go into hibernation. Initially, I just wanted some downers to drown out my thoughts and judgments since the constant barrage made it hard not to hate everyone and everything. I thought life would be more tolerable if my brain were slower to condemn the world around me. I started seeing Dr. Tuttle in January 2000. It started off very innocently. I was plagued with misery, anxiety, a wish to escape the prison of my mind and body, etc. Dr. Tuttle confirmed that this was nothing unusual. She wasn't a good doctor. I had found her name in the phone book. You've caught me at a good moment, she said the first time I called. I just finished rinsing the dishes. Where did you find my number? In the yellow pages. I like to think that I'd picked Dr. Tuttle at random and that there was something faded about our relationship, divine in some way. But in truth, she'd been the only psychiatrist to answer the phone at 11 at night on a Tuesday. I'd left a dozen messages on answering machines by the time Dr. Tuttle picked up. The biggest threats to brain nowadays, the biggest threats to brain nowadays, wait, the biggest threats to brains nowadays are all, it's hard to say because it's total nonsense, okay? <laughs> the biggest threats to brains nowadays are all the microwave ovens, Dr. Tuttle explained on the phone that night. Microwaves, radio waves, now there are cell phone towers blasting, with, blasting us with who knows what kind of frequencies. But that's not my science. I deal in treating mental illness. Do you work for the police, she asked me. No, I work for an art dealer at a gallery in Chelsea. Are you FBI? No. CIA? No. Why? I just have to ask these questions. Are you DEA, FDA, NICB, NHCAA, or are you a private investigator hired by any private or governmental entity? Do you work for a medical insurance company? Are you a drug dealer, drug addict? Are you a clinician, a med student, getting pills for an abusive boyfriend or employer? NASA? I think I have insomnia. That's my main issue, which was a lie. You're probably addicted to caffeine, too, am I right? I don't know, I said. You better keep drinking that coffee. If you quit now, you'll just go crazy. Real insomniacs suffer hallucinations and lost time and usually have poor memory. It can make life very confusing. Does that sound like you? Sometimes I feel dead, I told her, and I hate everybody. Does that count? Oh, that counts. That certainly counts. I'm sure I can help you. Um, Dr. Tuttle told me to come in the next day at 9. So, I'll, I'll read um, just a little bit more of Dr. Tuttle. <clears throat> Her home office was in an apartment building on 13th Street near Union Square. The waiting room was a dark wood paneled parlor full of fake Victorian furniture, cat toys, pots of potpourri, purple candles, wreaths of dead purple flowers, and stacks of old National Geographic magazines. The bathroom was crowded with fake plants and peacock feathers. On the sink next to a huge bar of cracked lilac soap was a wooden bowl of peanuts in an abalone shell. That baffled me. She hid all her personal toiletries in a large wicker basket in the cabinet under the sink. 
She used several antifungal powers, powders, a prescription steroid cream, shampoo and soap and lotions that smelled like lavender and violet, fennel toothpaste. Her mouthwash was prescription. When I tried it, it tasted like the ocean. <clears throat> the first time I met Dr. Tuttle, she wore a foam neck brace because of a taxi accident and was holding an obese tabby, whom she introduced as my eldest. <laughs> she pointed out the tiny yellow envelopes in the waiting room. When you come in, write your name on an envelope and fold your check inside. Pay payments go in here, she said, knocking on the wooden box on the desk in her office. It was the kind of box they have in churches for accepting donations for candles. The fainting couch in her office was covered in cat fur and piled on one end with little antique dolls with chipped porcelain faces. On her desk were half-eaten granola bars and stacked Tupperware containers of grapes and cut-up melon, a mammoth old computer, and more National Geographic magazines. What brings you here, she asked. Depression? She'd already pulled out her prescription pad. My plan was to lie. I'd given it careful consideration. I told her I'd been having trouble sleeping for the past six months and then complained of despair and nervousness in social situations. But as I was reciting my practice speech, I realized it was some, somewhat true. I wasn't an insomniac, but I was miserable. Complaining to Dr. Tuttle was strangely liberating. I want downers, that much I know, I said frankly, and I want something that'll put a damper on my need for company. I'm at the end of my rope, I said. I'm an orphan on top of it all. I probably have PTSD. My mother killed herself. How? Dr. Tuttle asked. Slid her wrists. I lied. Good to know. Her hair was red and frizzy. The foam brace she wore around her neck had what looked like coffee and food stains on it, and it squished the, the skin on her neck up toward her chin. Her face was like a bloodhound, folded and drooping, her sunken eyes hidden under very small wire-framed glasses with Coke bottle lenses. I never got a good look at Dr. Tuttle's eyes. I suspect that they were crazy eyes, black and shiny like a crow's. The pen she used was long and purple and had a purple feather at the end of it. Both my parents died while I was in college, I went on, just a few years ago. She seemed to study me for a moment, her expression blank and breathless. Then she turned back to her little prescription pad. I'm very good with insurance companies, she said matter-of-factly. I know how to play into their little games. Are you sleeping at all? Barely, I lied. Any dreams? Only nightmares. I figured. Sleep is key. People need upwards of 14 hours or so. The modern age has forced us to live unnatural lives. Busy, busy, busy. Go, go, go. You probably work too much. She scribbled for a while on her pad. Mirth, Dr. Tuttle said. I like it better than joy. Happiness is a word, isn't a word I like to use in here. It's very arresting, happiness. You should know that I'm someone who appreciates the subtleties of human experience. Being well-rested is a precondition, of course. Do you know what mirth means, M-I-R-T-H? Yeah, like the house of mirth, I said. A sad story, said Dr. Tuttle. I haven't read it. Better you don't, she said. 
I read The Age of Innocence. So you're educated. I went to Columbia. That's good for me to know, but not much use to you and your condition. <laughs> Education is directly proportional to anxiety, as you've probably learned having gone to Columbia. How's your food intake? Is it steady? Any dietary restrictions? When you walked in here, I thought of Farrah Fawcett and Faye Dunaway. Any relation? I'd say you're, what, 20 pounds below your ideal weight? Uh, I think my appetite would come back if I could sleep, I said. It was a lie. I was already sleeping upwards of 12 hours from 8 to 8. I was hoping to get pills to help me sleep straight through the weekends. Anyway, it keeps going. But, um, but maybe I'll just read the, this one part. <clears throat> There's something that Dr. Tuttle says. A lot of, oh, she says, do you live near any nuclear plants, any high voltage equipment? I live on the Upper East Side, I said. Do you take the subway? At this point, I, I had been taking the subway each day to work. A lot of psychic diseases get passed around in confined public spaces, she said. I sense your mind is too porous. Do you have any hobbies? I watch movies. That's a fun one. <laughs> anyway, um, she also talked, she said, daily meditation has been sure to cure insomnia in rats. I'm not a religious person, but you could try visiting a church or synagogue to ask for advice on inner peace. And then later, um, the protagonist asks, um, how'd they get the rats to meditate? <laughs> and Dr. Tuttle says, you've seen rats breed in captivity. The parents eat their babies. Now, we can't demonize them. They do it out of compassion for the good of the species. Any allergies? <laughs> And then later she says, some rats, she said after a while, probably deserve to be demonized. Certain individual rats. The moment we start making generalizations, we give up our right to self-govern. I hope you follow me here. Rats are very loyal to the planet. Try these, she said, handing me a sheath of prescriptions. Oh, I'm going to end there. But. Okay, thanks for bearing with me. Um, so? <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? So the question is, uh, and I'll just say the last part, how, how, do, I, how, how do I see my work um, dealing with class in terms of um, like life satisfaction and um, Right, oh, sat sat satisfaction versus joy. That's what you were asking. 
Um, I, I don't intentionally write about class, but it seems to come into everything that I write about. And one thing that I have been reflecting about in this book, I don't know how much I was thinking of it at the, at the time, but was just what um, what having what having grown up with money and having a lot of money and not having to be self-supportive does to a person in terms of their self sense of purposefulness on the planet and that that is a really dangerous breeding ground for psychosis and misery um, and really unhealthy relationships with people and, and inability to relate. Um, I mean, there was a time where we were all in the same struggle. I mean, like very, like early on in civiliz like pre-civilization, right? And then all this shit happened and um, life you know, life looks unfair to a lot of people from one end of the spectrum looking at another end, like the grass is always greener. I mean, I can't, like, what do, do I think... So Riva comes from a more middle-class background, and the protagonist, whose name we never learned, is from a rich family, but she's lost both her parents, who never seemed to really love her in the first place, you'll find out. And um, she is financially stable enough that she doesn't have to ever work, really, again. And um, is she, you know, so is she better off? No. She just has, like, she just has no life. Because she's... She's lazy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Well, my Vedic astrologist tells me <laughs> that I should spend time looking at videos of puppies, but I do the opposite, which is to completely indulge all of my curiosities, which are mostly just like absurd and sometimes disgusting or whatever. Um, and it, I don't, you know, it's a hard question to ask because it's like, is it hard to be yourself? Yeah, of course. But who, what else am I supposed to do, you know? And I think there are a lot worse things that I could spend my time working on right now than a story about somebody struggling, you know? There are a lot of worse things that I could be doing. <laughs> Nobody got that joke, okay. Way in the back, yeah. Yeah, um, I picked it out of a hat when I was just ripped up. No, I, um, I when I started this book, I realized that the, the New York City I was writing wasn't New York in 2016, which was when I, I wrote the book or was m mostly working on the book, that the New York I was describing was a much more vibrant, 
and gritty and interesting New York. And it was the New York that I had gotten to know as a young person. I moved to New York um, when I was 17, um, which was in 1998. And I lived there for 10 years. And I lived through the 9-11 um, uh, and so saw how New York shifted after um, that terrorist attack. And so, I mean, so I was, I realized, it wasn't like so much I made it, I made a decision, but I realized that the book was set um, in the year leading up to 9-11, and then 9-11 became something in the, um, very, like very present for me as the book continued. Um, there's also, you know, what, what is that cliche, necessity is the mother of invention. There's, there, I, I understood the premise with this character. I mean, the char like, I understood the character. This, one, this woman wants just to check out, and, but she's hopeful. She, she has this theory that if she can sleep enough, her cells will have regenerated enough times that they will have forgotten whatever trauma had happened um, that, sh that she was still holding on to. I mean, and, we, and you'll learn if you end up reading the book that a lot of shit, like really bad shit happens um, when, when she's a really young adult. Um, and we're meant to feel some, I don't know how much compassion you'll feel for her. But um, anyway, I, kn like I, I knew that she was gonna do this sleep project. And it, if I set the book in 2018, it, it simply wouldn't work. Oh, I just got deja vu. It wouldn't work because um, somebody would call her on the on her Somebody would text her. She would, you know, get... She, the, the situation she sets up for herself would be really different. Um, but in 2000 and 2001, you could still hide, you know? And, I mean, I guess there's an opposing argument because people, I think, probably isolate now more than ever because of the internet. You don't ever have to leave your house for anything. I still don't even know my neighbors' names, you know? It's sad, but um, they don't know my name. That's not true. Neil is here. Neil is my neighbor. And I saw him. He's the best. Um, Thank you, Neil. <coughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, that's a really scrappy answer to your question about the year 2000, but I think that you should read the book. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> kidding. George. Is it hard for her or hard for me? I have compassion from the beginning. And I think as the author, I am in a very special position where I, I have to have compassion or else I won't understand her. I mean, she does some things that I don't completely understand, but I'm in her psyche and she's the narrator. So I need to love her 
um, in order to feel her when she's being defensive and an asshole and to understand why she's saying these mean things about her friend, you know? And I can't, you can't judge your main character. I, I think if you don't have compassion for your main character, the book gets really weird. And um, I don't, yeah, a lot of my characters, I mean, I also just think maybe she's, I like writing from the perspective of too much honesty from the narrator. And I think that she's actually not that different from an average kind of like surly, you know, privileged person. You're just hearing her intimate thoughts. And, and the same was true with Eileen. You were hearing the thoughts of this old woman reflecting on her past and this where she, she kind of gets away from things and says too much, you know? Um, does that answer your question? Okay. say both. I mean, I, my mind works, one way that my mind works is it likes to collect things. And maybe it's from having grown up with a mom who was a little bit of a collector slash hoarder. But I like to group things in my mind in certain categories that often describe sort of abstractly a character. Like the things in Dr. Tuttle's bathroom to me, when I put them together in my head, I can understand Dr. Tuttle. Even though, you know, like, it, do, it shouldn't make sense. Like, why should peanut shells and lilac soap make sense for Dr. Tuttle? But I'm the writer and these are my associations. So, um, I think I'm an observant person. And I, I, when I was young, I was really, really quiet and much more of a watcher. And then, um, and, and I still am. I'm still very watchful and judgmental and I collect things in my, in my head and put them into like group categories. So there's an archive of images and characters are usually, you know, a combination of image, gesture, and dialogue. And then <clears throat> if it's the narrator, monologue, internal monologue. So uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that made any sense, but. I'm not actually a very visual person, but somehow vi like vision through language makes more sense to me. I think it would be hard to parse out exactly how it shows up in my work, but I have a I have a sense, and I could be wrong, that I have a slightly different perspective on American culture because my parents weren't, they, they, they were both immigrants, but they immigrated from two different places. So if culture is what people have in common, like I grew up with no culture. I mean, I grew up with, my parents were both musicians. I grew up in the culture of music, but I didn't grow up in, in American culture in, the, in, in a full way. I always felt like I wasn't really um, 
I didn't really want to be a part of it because I liked just I liked observing it and judging it because that made me feel powerful. So <clears throat> I think in that sense, like yeah, a lot of my work is probably informed by that experience. But you know, I don't think I write like a Persian person or like a Croatian person. I actually haven't read literature from either of those countries. Maybe deliberately. But anyway, thank you for asking. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.